Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians as we work our way through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. We're in chapter 5, and our focus tonight will be verses 22 to 24, but I do want to read the, the larger section beginning in verse 15. The Apostle Paul tells us we're to walk as new men and women in Christ Jesus, and then he gives concrete illustrations of that. In chapter 5, verse 1, we're to walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 8, we're to walk in light. And then chapter 5, verse 15, we're to walk in wisdom. And so that's our context, so I'll pick up reading in chapter 5 at verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you, in particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we thank you for the Lord's Day. We thank you for the privilege to gather together in your house and to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray now that you would guide us by the Holy Spirit, lead us into an understanding of your truth, and help us by your grace to put it into practice. And do forgive us for all sin, all remaining corruption, and God reach down in mercy and grace to any and all who are dead in their trespasses and sins, and awaken them with that powerful voice of God Most High that is able to crush the cedars of Lebanon. May you call sinners out of darkness into marvelous light, confessing faith in our blessed Savior. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is important for us to remember the structure in the book of Ephesians. So the first two chapters are doctrinal and basically answer the question, how is man saved? Well, the answer is very clear. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. And then chapter 3 is a bit of a transition chapter. Paul indicates his role in terms of God's redemptive plan. He speaks concerning the mystery, which is Gentile inclusion in the covenant promises of God. And then chapters 4 to 6 are practical in nature. In other words, you've been saved by God's grace through the blood of the cross. You've been given this alien righteousness received by faith alone. So in chapters 4 to 6, he answers the question, how then are you supposed to live? How do you conduct yourself as saved sinners? 
And we mustn't forget that because I'm going to preach the law tonight. We are not saved by the law. We are saved by grace. The law shows us our sin. The law shows us our need for the Lord Jesus. And as blood-bought children who have the Holy Spirit, the law provides that pattern for us on how we're to conduct ourselves. But ladies, you're not saved because you're an exemplary wife. You are saved because Christ is an exemplary savior. It is because of him that we enter into heaven. And so never forget that. Never get uh, lose sight of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we deal with law passages, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel of Jesus. Well, in the particular section we find ourselves in, as I said, in chapter five, uh, chapter five, specifically at verses 15 to 17, the apostle gives a general exhortation to walk in wisdom. He then gives a specific prohibition in verse 18a, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. And then he gives a positive exhortation in verse 18b, but be filled with the spirit. And those who are filled with the Spirit will look like what he says in the remaining section. They will speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They will make melody in their hearts and praise the Lord Jesus Christ. They will express gratitude to God through Jesus Christ in all things. And then they will submit to one another in the fear of God. So verse 21 is a general exhortation concerning submitting to one another in the fear of God. And then from verse 22 all the way to chapter 6, verse 9, we see that uh, fleshed out in concrete situations, in relationships, wives and husbands, children and parents, servants and masters. And so the apostle gives concrete illustration to what it means or what it looks like in terms of submitting to one another in the fear of God. Oftentimes, these sections of scripture are referred to as a household code. In other words, the duties, the responsibilities, the things that are requisite for those who live together and relate to one another. So when we look at our particular section in verses 22 to, 20, uh, 22 to 33, you've got first the exhortation to wives in verses 22 to 24, and then second, the exhortation to husbands in verses 25 to 33. We'll just take up that first section tonight with reference to the wives. There was a recent Babylon Bee article, and it said, according to experts, reminding your wife what the Bible says, she sh or reminding your uh, wife the Bible says she should submit leads to the happiest marriages. Now, you need to know that the Babylon Bee is satire. As a pastor, I can confirm that, brothers. Reminding your wives of her responsibility is probably not the best way to pursue a happy marriage. Now, ladies, this is probably going to be a bit difficult to hear, but Paul, the, the uh, inspired apostle of our blessed Savior, gives specific commands. Men are called upon, women are called upon, we're going to deal with women. Under three considerations. First, the duty of submission in verse 22. Second, the reason for submission in verse 23. And then finally, the practice of submission in verse 24. But with reference to the duty, I've got four things to consider. First, the meaning of the word. Second, other spheres of submission. Third, the limitation with reference to submission. And then fourth, the nature of submission. But first of all, we ask the question, what does a word mean? I mean, it's a very simple word. Wives, submit 
to your own husbands. There's something that probably rubs us a little raw when we read that. If we have been schooled in the modern era, we are uh, heavy doses of feminism, heavy doses of attacks on the family, heavy doses of you can be whatever it is you want and you don't need to be held down by anybody. So we come to these words at times and we're already bristling a little bit. Well, let's just define the word. According to a Greek dictionary, bidag, it means to subject oneself, be subjected or subordinated, obey, of submission involving recognition of an ordered structure. Now, the old uh, Webster's Dictionary of 1828 defines it this way, to yield, resign, or surrender to the power, will, or authority of another. Now, when it comes to this particular verb that is utilized, it's actually picked up from verse 21. It's in what's called the middle voice. So that means that the subject of that verb willingly engages in this activity. This is not a case of compulsion. This is not a case of coercion. She does not have a, a gun to her head. Rather, she willingly engages in this act of submission. And remember that the woman agreed to marry her husband. Now, we're not in sort of a situation, at least here in North America, where we have arranged marriages. You picked your bride and you picked your bridegroom and you stood up before God and men and you covenanted, ladies, to honor and obey your husband. So there is that willingness involved in the particular activity. There is the willingness involved in this uh, function uh, uh, in terms of submission. Now, secondly, other spheres of submission. It's not just women or wives that are called upon to submit to their husbands. We see submission all over the place. Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. You've got the family relationship. Wives submit to their husbands. Children obey their parents and honor their parents. All of us have responsibility in the civil sphere to submit to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. As well in the church and ecclesiastical settings, there is this mandate in Hebrews 13, 7 and Hebrews 13, 17 to submit to the ruler, not the ruler in terms of the ecclesiastical realm, but in terms of a leader with reference to that church setting. And there is an interesting and curious illustration that we should uh, look at in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 2, we need to understand that this submission is not predicated upon the perfection of the entity being submitted unto. In other words, we can't say, well, the government's terrible, so therefore I'm not going to submit. My husband's terrible, so therefore I'm not going to submit. My pastor's terrible, so therefore I'm not going to submit. Now, there might be reasons why you should find another pastor, another church. There might be reasons why you should move to Costa Rica. There might be reasons why there, the, 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 you might take a different course. But you can't, you can't just say because this person is imperfect. Notice in Luke's gospel, specifically at chapter 2, in verse 51. Then he, this is Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Remember the hypostatic union of our Lord. One person, two natures. There is the divinity and there is the humanity. Certainly as divinity, he doesn't submit to his earthly parents. But according to his humanity, he does. 
And these were imperfect people. Joseph and Mary were not holy, harmless, and undefiled. They were not without spot or blemish. They were not without sin. They were not in a position to never be wrong, to never ever give a command or never ever give an instruction that would be wrong. And yet Jesus Christ, according to his humanity, submits willingly to that. So with reference to submission, it's not simply confined to a wife, to her husband. We all have this responsibility to one degree or other. Now, thirdly, the limitation, it's right there in the text. Verse 22, first, wives. He's not speaking to women and men. He's not saying all women must be submissive to all men. That's not the point. He is speaking to wives and he is telling them that their responsibility or their duty is to submit to their own husband, not to every other husband out there, not to every man out there. Again, Paul's not a Muslim. Paul is not embracing Islam. He's not teaching this sort of subjection on the part of women to all men that are out there. This is a limiting thing. This is a blessed thing. Wives submit to your own husbands. Now with reference, then finally, under this head, the duty of submission, notice the nature of it. It's that last bit in verse 22 that says, as to the Lord. And I think this describes the motive and the manner. The motive and the manner. With reference to submission in the home, it is a religious duty. In fact, Matthew Poole makes the observation, as unto the Lord. For the Lord's sake, who hath commanded it, so that ye cannot be subject to him without being subject to them. In other words, if you are not subject to your own husband and you profess faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, you are not being subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very simple and a very clear situation. And so there is this religious obligation in terms of motivation. Turn over to the book of Titus as well to see the religious nature of submission on the part of a Christian woman to, to her own husband. Notice in Titus chapter two, specifically at verse five, several and varied instructions given to various people groups in the church. First, older men, verse two, older women, verse three, and then the younger women in verses four and five. So notice the older women are to instruct the younger women, according to verse four, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. Now notice the stakes, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. In other words, the religious nature of this is seen in the reality that if a woman does not embrace her function, if she does not embrace her role, if she does not embrace this command to submit to her own husband as to the Lord, she is in danger of promoting blasphemy against the very word of God most high. So that's the motive. But in terms of the manner, when we go back to verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I've already mentioned this submission is willing. This isn't coercion. This isn't compulsion. You have not been forced into this. There was no shotgun behind your back or behind your man's back. You went into this willingly. Now, may I just say as a sideline note to our single people here, that you really pay attention to this passage of scripture, that you really ponder the implications involved in marriage that you don't rush to the altar because you've got to get married. 
No, you've got to make sure that you honor God. You've got to make sure that you're the kind of guy that Paul commands you to be. And you're the kind of woman that Paul commands you to be. So there is a gravity involved. I think if there was more pondering, more contemplation, more examination on the front end, I would bet there would be less divorce on the back end. Because if you don't consider the situation, if you don't count the cost, if you do not take this seriously, you're going to have problems. Now again, I'm not God, I'm not infallible, I am wrong a lot, but this much I think I can speak to. If you don't do the work on the front end, you're going to have problems on the back end. So the submission is willing, but the submission is also joyful. How are we supposed to submit to our blessed Savior? Okay, I'll do what you say, but I really don't want to. Okay, I'll do what you say, but, but you know, in my heart, I, I'm just not happy about this. If, as parents, when you give a, an exhortation to your child to comply with a particular instruction, what do you do if they have that kind of an attitude? You check them on it, don't you? You call them out. You say, well, it's not enough for you just to pick up your socks, but you need to do it at least with a degree of joyfulness. I mean, it's not a happy task to be sure, but you can't show your displeasure. You cannot reveal that sort of thing. If that is in your heart, you need to subdue that. So our service to the Lord or our submission to the Lord, it's not supposed to be grudging. It's not supposed to be upsetted. It's not supposed to be, well, you know, I'm gonna do it, but I just don't really wanna do it. No, there's a willingness, there's a joyfulness, but then there's a comprehensiveness, and we'll see that specifically at the end of verse 24. In everything, according to verse 24, we'll offer a qualification there in everything that is lawful. If your husband commands you to engage in sin, you must obey God rather than men. So all human observance to other human beings has a qualification. It has a built-in limitation. If somebody commands you to sin, you are free to invoke the principle in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. Now, in terms of a bit of a summary statement with reference to what's involved in submission, listen to John Gill. He says, they should think well of their husbands, just giving a bit of a dimension in terms of how this looks. They should speak becomingly to them and respectfully of them. The wife should take care of the family and family affairs according to the husband's will, should imitate him in what is good and bear with that which is not so agreeable. She should not curiously inquire into his business, but leave the management of it to him. It's a bit of an odd one, but you know, hey, that's Gil in his time. Some of us like to talk to our wives about stuff and that's okay too. He goes on to say, she should help and assist in caring and providing for the family and should abide with him in prosperity and adversity and do nothing without his will and consent. Again, if we are conditioned by feminism in our generation, we're gonna balk at this. We're gonna bristle at that. You're not the boss of me. You don't have that authority over me. Again, brethren, the po Apostle Paul says that a man does. It, you, you can't evade that. You may not like it at some level. It might cause you to bristle at some level. But again, think about this before you say, I do. 
Because when you say, I do, and you enter into those vows, and you covenant and promise to be a, 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 an obedient and faithful and, uh, and honoring wife, you're, you're in it. Y you have to do it. As well, Matthew Henry makes the observation, whatever there is of une uneasiness in this, it is an effect of sin coming into the world. In that original condition of innocence, when God makes Adam, plants him in the garden, brings Eve to him, she's the helper to Adam. There would have been no bristling there. There would have been no, ah, you're not the boss of me, Adam. There would have been none of that. She would have faithfully, lovingly, willingly, and joyfully complied with his instructions because that's how God designed it. Again, you can see why feminism. You can see why transgenderism. You can see why homosexuality. You can see why all of these things that are perverse because they want to destroy the God-designed nature, the good God-designed nature of creation. They want to invert it. They want to turn it on its head. They want to obliterate it and abolish it. They want to decimate it. Well, the church must stand fast. The church must stand faithful. The church must persevere with reference to those things that are commanded for both men and women, for both husband and wife. So that's the duty. Secondly, notice the reason for submission in verse 23. And he gives two, two reasons. First, the creation of man, and then the comparison with Christ. Notice in verse 23, for the husband is head of the wife. Now, in terms of the grammar in this text, notice that this is what's called the indicative. And the indic indicative is, is the mood of reality. There's another mood in Greek and, and in English called the imperative. An imperative is a command. Notice that Paul does not say to married couples in Ephesus, okay, on your wedding night, sit down at your kitchen table and figure out who has the best ability to lead. Figure out who's better suited to be the head in this relationship. And whichever one has the strengths, has the abilities, has the wherewithal, then that one from then on will be the head. That's not what he says. The husband is. That's the indicative mood. He doesn't say the husband is, is, is hopefully going to be. Husbands, your head, whether you're a good one or a bad one, you're nevertheless the head in your family. Remember after that plunge into sin by Adam and Eve, who does God address first? He goes to Adam. Why? Because Adam is the head of the family. Adam is the head of his bride. And it's Adam whose responsibility it was to protect her and to watch over her and to lead her and to care for her. Adam doesn't do that, of course, because when he's called out on the carpet, he first blames God, the woman whom thou hast given me. In other words, God, if you hadn't given her to me, we wouldn't be in this mess. And then he throws her under the bus in terms of her responsibility in this affair. But nevertheless, he is the head. And that's the grammar of our text. Husbands, or for the husband, is head of the wife. The verb is an indicative, not an imperative. The apostle does not command Christian couples to find out who's the better suited and let that one function in that capacity. And then notice the noun itself indicates a leadership role. For the husband is head. Now, head has been tried to, some have tried to explain it, people that would disagree with this sermon, as being source or origin. She, she comes from Adam. 
But that's not how it's used here, brethren. It's used in the way of leadership. It's used of that uh, 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 Christ in, in, in Ephesians 1.22. He's, he's the head over, over all things for the church. Now, he is source and origin to be sure, but in that context, it's talking about his exaltation. It's talking about his, his, his role as our head, as our leader, as our governor, as our sovereign Lord. So the particular text in view here indicates that the husband is, and what is he? He's the head of the wife. Listen to Charles Hodges' commentary. He says, the, the headship of man cannot be denied or disregarded without destroying society and degrading both men and women, making the one effeminate and the other masculine. One wonders if Hodge fell out of heaven into 21st century North America, what he might discover. He might discover that he was speaking prophetically in terms of what does obtain when those distinctions are obliterated in and by a society. Let me just read it again. The headship of man cannot be denied or disregarded without destroying society and degrading both men and women, making the one effeminate and the other masculine. Of course, some will say, but what about a woman who's got great strengths and gifts? We're gonna deal with that when we get to the men. The Bible has a word for a man who doesn't utilize the strengths and the value of his wife. The Bible calls him a fool. The Bible calls him a Nabal. The Bible says that he's a meathead if he does not utilize the gifts and the strengths that his wife brings to the table. We're dealing with the wives right now, and the specific reason for this is the creation of man. Now notice, several texts that confirm this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 deals with life in the church. You've got texts that speak to life in the home, and you've got texts that speak to life in the church. Now when it comes to life in the church, God insists on male leadership. God insists on men pastoring. God insists on men deaconing. God insists on men leading in the context of the local church. Now, 1 Corinthians 11 is one of those passages that deal with men head, men's headship in the life of the church. Notice in verse 3, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And then drop down to verses 7 and, nine, 7 and 9. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. And then turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Again, this is in the context of the church. Why don't you guys have women pastors? Because God says men are supposed to be pastors. It's really that simple. Why do you say that women shouldn't be pastors? Because God says that women shouldn't be pastors. Notice in 1 Corinthians 14, 34, let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. I think law is more expansive there and probably includes Genesis chapters one to three. God's design in the created order is that Adam is the head of the wife. 
then wife Eve comes to Adam to function in that manner of a helpmeet, as one that assists him, one that is comparable to him in the event, or, or, or for the effect of doing what he has been called to do in terms of tending the garden. So you've got the church, and then you've got as well the home. We see that here in Ephesians chapter 5. You see it in Colossians chapter 3. We saw it there in Titus chapter 2. But turn to one more passage in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Perhaps some of you have read the, the story of, of C.H. Spurgeon and his wife, Susanna. She referred to him as Tershatha. Tershatha means governor. Oh, that's pretty harsh. That's pretty terrible. I think it was affectionately. I doubt she did it with a gun. You had to call me Tershatha, baby. No, that's not how it was. She referred to him with that kind of respect, that kind of love, and that kind of honor. How did Sarah address Abraham? Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 6. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. And notice, ladies, the command doesn't change based on the reality that your husband's unconverted. This is what I call the tough pill. Any of you young people that have come into my office for premarital counseling, I typically always give you the tough pill. I'd like to ask any of the young people that are here, do you remember what the tough pill is? The tough pill is that you must obey Ephesians 5 whether or not your spouse does. Husbands, love your wives as long as they're submitting to you and honoring you, and are altogether lovely. Mm -mm. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, insofar as he exemplifies the perfection of Jesus and his careful, compassionate, and kind leadership. No. That's why I also say we should try to help each other. If my task is to love my wife as Christ loved the church, then I'd like to think she wants to try to be lovable. If her task is to submit to me, I don't want to be a constant irritant. I don't want to be an ogre. I don't want to be a tyrant. I don't want to make her task more difficult. I have this zany notion that husbands and wives are workers with one another for their joy, to help them along to heaven to comply with the commands of God in a reciprocity, uh, uh, with reciprocity. I love, she submits, she submits, I love. Now notice that Paul does not address the wives in Ephesians 5 to love their husbands. I think the reason why is that he assumes that. It said, stated specifically there in Titus 2, 4, and 5, but I think that Paul is addressing us where we need addressing. I think the tendency in a woman, a tendency in a wife, now I'm not trying to, you know, castigate anybody or say anything bad, got biblical warrant for saying this, is that mindset of you're not the boss over me. You're, you're not the governor over me. You're not my Tershatha. And what's a husband's proclivity? To not show the love and the kindness and the care for his bride that he ought to. So when Paul does this, when he tells wives to submit, I think he's doing it because that's a predilection toward them to not do. When he tells the husbands to love, he wants them to really love. 
And so when it comes to these particular things, we need to understand that the tough pill is, even if my spouse isn't perfect, I still need to do it. Just like that Luke 2.51 thing. So back to 1 Peter 3. Wives likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. So there could be a situation where you're married to a man who's an unconverted man. Notice what Peter doesn't say. Badger him each and every day with the gospel. Harp on him incessantly with the gospel. Now, of course, tell him the gospel. Of course, encourage him to come to church to hear the gospel. But what is Peter's demand? Peter's demand is that you live with them in such a way that they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being subjected submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Brothers, I want to remind you of the Babylon Bee. Don't go home tonight and say, honey, from here on out, I'm Tershatha. I'm governor, I'm Lord. That, that's the marching orders. Please don't do that. Or you're going to probably all be in my office by the end of the week. That's not going to go well. But with reference to this whole idea, we have the creation account as paradigmatic for both creation and redemption. Remember, we're renewed, we're made anew, we've been renewed in knowledge and righteousness according to Ephesians chapter 4. We're new creatures in Christ Jesus. Notice that Paul doesn't obliterate what was done in the garden. He takes what was done in the garden and, and says that that is, is a pattern for life in Christ for redemptive ethic. And then notice this comparison with Christ, verse 23b. And he is the, I'm sorry, as also Christ is head of the church and he is the savior of the body. There's that same indicative. It's not like, you know, who's gonna be the head, the church or Christ? Christ is the head of the church. And this re reality that he is the savior of the body shows that he is caring, shows that he is compassionate, shows that he is kind, shows that he is providing protection and stability and things that are good. So this idea of a wife submitting to her own husband, that's not a bad thing. That's the orbit in which God blesses. That's a good thing. And if your husband is the kind of man that takes Ephesians 5, 25 to 33 seriously, then it's going to be a blessing for you to submit to him. Christ lovingly leads his church. It is her joy to submit. Christ lovingly protects her church or his church. It is therefore her joy to submit. And the man who fulfills the obligation placed upon him is a man that it is good to submit to. And a woman who fulfills her obligation is the kind of woman that you want to lovingly lead. Again, the reciprocity. Love your wife, and then she submits. Submit to your husband, and he loves. It's this great circle of blessing and joy and happiness. Do you know what always happens? <laughs> One or both, don't do that. One or both, abandon the whole scheme. One or both say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do this. Or one or both say, I mean, it could be both, right? <laughs> both of them. I'm not going to love that woman the way that I'm supposed to. And I'm not going to submit to that man the way that I'm supposed to. Well, that's a problem. And again, let's go back to, to the front end. 
Think through this stuff before you go up before God and men and say, I do. Take some personal responsibility and realize that when you say, I do, it comes with several obligations upon you. I like the way Jay Adams describes marriage. He calls it uh, a covenant of companionship. And he says that one of the things that people do when they get married is they're looking for what they can get. Oh, this one will satisfy all my needs. This one can, you know, make good waffles. This one is a hard worker and he's got a big bank account. This one is gonna do that. We should be looking at marriage as how we can give how we can serve, how we can aid, how we can assist, how we can help. Get rid of the selfish orientation that says, I'm in this for me. When persons are in marriage for me, it never goes well, brethren. It just doesn't. The way to oil the wheels of progress in terms of Christian marriage is to obey God as he speaks to us through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. That's the way. It's tough. It's hard. We bristle. We've got problems. Men often abdicate instead of being the head. They're passive and they, they don't engage as they ought but hopefully they hear the word of God, they've blood bought by the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, they're spirit filled, and they say, you know what, I need to man up, and I need to actually do what Paul commands me here. If I'm a lady, I need to woman up and do what Paul actually commands here. And when we start looking out for the interests of others, then that's when blessing typically flows. It's generally the case. Now notice thirdly and finally the practice of submission. Looks like repetition in verse 24, but it's implication, it's application, it's parallel, it's analogy. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. She is subject to her head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at this particular section, husbands love as Christ loved the church. That's a perfect standard. Wives submit the way the church does to Christ. That's an imperfect standard, right? If you're in the church, you have to confess it's imperfect. Because you and I are here. We don't always submit the way we ought in terms of the church. So ladies don't say, well, you know, I'm like the church. I've got some defects, I've got some blemishes, but, but that's okay. No, don't argue that way. Just as the church is subject to our blessed Savior, so wives must be subject to their own husbands in everything. Notice in verse 33. This is where he sort of summarizes the entirety of the argument. Verse 32 is curious. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The book of Song of Solomon. It's not about love, a love manual for newly married people. It's God and Israel. It's Christ and his church. Psalm 45, you see that bridegroom, Christ, married to the church. So what Paul is speaking of in terms of the husband and wife relationship is the point, but it's not the point. In fact, what he is saying is that when you as Christians enter into marriage, you are communicating something about Jesus and his church. You're either doing a good job in communicating that or you're doing a bad job in communicating that. But doing a job communicating that, most certainly you are. Because a husband and a wife who confess saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ must function in an analogous relationship to Jesus and his church. 
So the church functions here as the standard for the wife. So therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now that's where this qualification is made by me, and I think Paul would affirm this. The church must not pick and choose. First, let's deal with that little phrase, in everything. Well, certainly that can't mean waffles. Yeah, it does, if he's not telling you to sin. I don't know that I found where thou must not make waffles is in the Bible. Now, if you're a husband, again, don't be a nayball. You have to make waffles, baby. No, no, no. Choose your hills to die on wisely. Choose your hills to, 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 to battle on. And I don't mean physically. You, you all understand. You're all married, or most of you are married. So, so understand. There are, you know, marriage is a series of battles. It's a series of moving the ball down the field, trying to do it together to be sure. But again, one time or other, some of us mess up and fumble. But with reference to this, she must not pick and choose as church to Christ. Well, we like, you know, six out of the Ten Commandments or seven out of the Ten Commandments. So those, those other ones we don't like. No, it's in everything that the church renders subjection to our Lord Jesus. Well, the same thing in a marriage. It's in everything. Everything. That's what the text says, brethren. I, I mean, my eyes work pretty well. It says that right there. So let, let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, now wives, understand, I'm going to try to hit the men in a couple of weeks and say, again, don't be nabals. Don't be fools. Don't pressure love for waffles to the point where she is so upset with you, she would rather move out. You know, that, that, that's not wise. There, there, there's wisdom and judiciousness that, that need to go along with marriage. If you're a blockhead, you're going to have problems. The way of the transgressor is hard, according to Solomon in Proverbs 13, 15. It, it's just, it is. The way of the treacherous, the way of the transgressor, the way of the unfaithful, it's, it's just hard. You don't smooth out a marriage relationship by being a blockhead. It, it just doesn't work. And ladies, it doesn't work for you by being a shrew, by being that sort of person that, that you know, you're not the boss of me. Again, why did you say I do? Why did you covenant to honor and obey? Are these just empty, meaningless words? Are these just, it's just what we do. It's tradition. We, we have to stand before God. We have to stand before men. And we have to ring out these, these, these useless words. Oh, yeah, I'm going to honor and obey. Well, you need to ponder the implications of honor and obey. But again, look at verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. She respects her husband. Dare I tell you what the Greek word is here? It's fear. Now that's not, he's going to whack me, so I better do what I'm supposed to. It's fear like the way Christians are to fear God. There's a reverence, there's a respect, there's an esteem. That's what biblical fear is. Now there is a running from God because he's going to judge you sort of a fear, but the fear of God that leads to life is that reverential awe before our blessed God. So Paul, as he encapsulates or as he summarizes, he says to the wife that she respects her husband. That means you're not rolling his eyes every, or rolling your eyes every time he talks. That means you're not saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just, no, you're not the boss of me. These, these sorts of things, it's just not right. 
And then the qualification and everything lawful. The principle of Acts chapter 5, verse 29 applies here. In verses 27 to 29, we read, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. If your husband commands you to engage in sexual immorality, you obey God rather than men. If your husband tells you, commands you to commit abortion or murder, you obey God rather than men. If your husband commands you to lie and deceive so that you can protect him and his sinfulness, you need to obey God rather than men. If your husband says you can't do this and it's contrary to the word of God, you must obey God rather than men. So this isn't a blanket statement that your little automatons and whatever he says, you know, he says jump and you, you just you know, say how high. No, that's not it, brethren. That's not it at all. It is in everything, but it's in everything that is lawful. Now, in conclusion, just a couple of thoughts and then we'll go. First, encouragement to the wives. <laughs> You're probably thinking, I don't feel very encouraged right now. Hopefully you do. You are blood-bought and spirit-filled and therefore enabled by God in his grace to comply with this. That's my encouragement. Whatever God calls us to do, as believers in Jesus Christ, he gives us the grace requisite so that we can comply. So you say, well, I just can't do that. Well, you're going to have to repent. I just won't do that. You're going to have to repent. I just, I don't have a heart for that. You're going to have to repent. Sorry. I'm, I'm saying that as encouragingly as I possibly can, but you need to hear it. Now, to the husbands, you are called to lovingly lead your wife. If we had to summarize the emphasis of the apostle, that's it. Love and lead. Now, when you do that, do so in a biblical way so that submission to you is pleasant. It's not a chore. It's not a heartache. It's not a heart, uh, 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 a challenge. Oh, oh, this, this guy is just such a wretch. He's, he's horrible. He's a monster. I, I can't do it. I won't do it. I'll, I'll never be able to do it. No, brethren, be faithful. Love your wives so that she will happily comply with her particular responsibility. Now, to married couples, as I've already said, I already gave you the tough bill. Just remember it. Your obedience is not predicated on hers or your obedience is not predicated on hers. Well, when she's really lovely, then I'll love her as Christ loved the church. When he's really godly, then I'll submit to him as to the Lord. No. What's Matthew 7, 12 tell us in the, the golden rule? Let me just rehearse it for you. Matthew 7, 12. Therefore, whatever these two words kind of change the orientation of the, the command. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Do to them as you want them to do to you, not as they actually are doing to you. See the difference? Well, I'm not going to treat that person with the respect and dignity they deserve because they don't treat me that way. But you want them to, don't you? Well, yeah, I want them. Well, that's the golden rule. Same with this whole emphasis here on submission and on loving leadership. You can't say, well, he's not worthy of it or she's not worthy of it. Brethren, you need to do what God calls you to do. 
And then encouragement to the single people, the people that want to get married. If you're single and you don't want to get married, you can tune out. But to the single people that want to get married, make yourself marry a bull. Make yourself marry a bull. You know, it's times like these, we hear sermons and say, Lord God, give me a woman that'll submit to me. You should first pray, God, make me the kind of man that can lovingly lead. And then give me a woman that can submit to me. Or if you're a woman, God, give me a man that will lovingly lead me. Why don't you first pray, God, help me to be the kind of woman that will be able to submit. You've got to ask that question. You've, you've got to ponder that. You've got to be marryable. As well, the necessity to find the spouse that God has for you. Just because a man is a Christian and a woman is a Christian doesn't necessarily mean those two should get married. There's this interesting account, you've heard me quote it, it's in Ian Murray's uh, biography on Jonathan Edwards, talking about Edwards. I think they had nine to 11 kids. I, I can't remember, they had a few, you know, uh, mortality, but not all the children were as mild as Jerusha or as obedient as Esther. The quick temper of Sarah, the eldest daughter, so persisted that according to tradition, when her hand was asked in marriage by Elihu Parsons, 10 years later, Edwards, quote, plainly disclosed to him the unpleasant temper of his daughter. But she has grace, I trust, asked Parsons, to which Edwards replied, I hope she has, but grace can live where you cannot. So just because one is a Christian and the other is a Christian, there's still things like ability to communicate, <laughs> ability to stand one another, you know, physical attraction. There's, there's just a lot of chemistry involved in this. So, so make sure you're mindful of that. And then something I typically try to encourage single persons that want to get married with is try to be content in your present state. Try to be content in your present state. Desperation is not an attractive trait. And trying to cultivate that spirit of contentedness where God has you is crucial. Listen to Watson. Watson says, Satan loves to fish in the troubled waters of a discontented heart. Wow. Let me just repeat that. Satan loves to fish in the troubled waters of a discontented heart. That doesn't just apply to single persons wanting to get married, but it certainly applies to single persons wanting to get married. Be content with the place that God has you in. And if it is God's plan, purpose, and will to provide for you a Mr. or a Mrs. Wright, then praise him for that. But don't get ahead of yourselves. Secondly, by way of examination, if the idea of submission to you is that it's antiquated and therefore outdated, you need to repent. If the idea that submission is not fair, you need to realize that it is, and you need to repent. And if the idea is, is that submission is degrading, you need to understand that it's not, and you need to repent. Let me just rehearse Charles Hodge again. We're about to close. The headship of man cannot be denied or disregarded without destroying society and degrading both men and women, making the one effeminate and the other masculine. I can't help but think, pregnant man emoji in your phone, 
has come as a result of this swap, of this inversion of the effeminate man and the masculine woman. There is nothing wrong with feminine, uh, feminine qualities and characteristics in a woman. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with masculine qualities and characteristics in a man. God made it this way and it's good. Why do we recoil against it? Why do we resist it? Why do we say, oh no, we're much smarter now. Women can do everything that a man can do. No, they can't, brethren. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls them the weaker vessel. I remember, and I'm sure anybody who's gone to commercial gyms, men that do a little bit of bench pressing, will warm up with what a woman does as a max. You're warming up with whatever that particular weight is, and if a woman gets that, it's her max lift. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing bad about that. The answer isn't throw testosterone in her so she can get more on the bench press. No, feminist, uh, feminine qualities are fantastic in feminine people, in, in women. Sorry, I don't want to sound like a, a woke one. <laughs> and masculine qualities are good in men. This is the way God made it. It's, it's a blessing. The cursing comes when we invert it. The cursing comes when we obliterate it. The cursing comes with the man who's gonna be passive. The man who's gonna let his wife run the show. We use that common parlance, who wears the pants in the family. Brethren, it is not right. The man is supposed to lead because he is the head. The wife is supposed to submit. Why? Because that's how God designed it. And happiness and joy and fulfillment are found in that. And then as I started with, ladies, I will finish. The gospel of Jesus Christ is your hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You're not saved by virtue of the fact that you're an exemplary wife. You are saved, hopefully, to pursue and become an exemplary wife. But on that day of judgment, it's the doing and the dying and the rising of Jesus that is your warrant to enter into heaven. Never forget that. When we talk law, we need to remind ourselves of gospel. We need to remember there is a fountain open for sin and uncleanness that we as married couples need to apply to very often in the ebb and flow of our marriages. Well, let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clearness, the clarity, the simplicity of what you call us to in terms of family. I pray that you would help us as men and as women to embrace these things. And by the presence and the power of that Holy Spirit that we are to be filled with, we would comply, we would obey, and we would do so with a joyfulness and a willingness and with a desire to bring glory and honor to you in our homes. I pray that you would go with us now, watch over us in this coming week. And God, please be glorified in the midst of this local church. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We'll close with a brief time of meditation.